Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. It's wonderful to see such a full house. Thank you so much for coming this evening. Um, It's my pleasure to say a few introductory words to this evening. Um, I'm Steve Simpson, the Academic Director of the Charles Perkins Centre, within which uh, the auditorium of the Charles Perkins Centre we're sitting at the moment. Before I go anywhere, however, please may I pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the elders past, present and emerging. our First Nations peoples managed to steward a food system within this nation which supported health for millennia. Um, We're here tonight to discuss the problems of the modern world's food system and what we're going to be doing is kicking off a really significant event which has happened now for the second time, and this is the beginning of the Food Governance Conference. Now, that's a collaborative endeavour that emerges out of the Food Governance Project node at the Charles Perkins Centre, and it's a partnership between the University of Sydney Law School, um, the Charles Perkins Centre, and the George Institute um, for Global Health. And the leadership of the node um, sits with um, a key academic from the law school, and that's Belinda Reeve and um, Ali Jones, who is at the George. I should also say thank you um, for some funding to support our keynote speaker this evening that came um, from the uh, uh, the, the network, the New Food and Sydney Food and Nutrition Network, which uh, is led by David Robenheimer out of the Charles Perkins Centre. Um, and they've contributed um, the funding for our Professor Halal Elvers' travel to this meeting. So as I said, the the event is around the global food system, um, which sits at the heart of some of the most urgent environmental equity and health challenges of the 21st century. And that's not to say that the modern food system hasn't had extraordinary successes. Of course it has. We now produce large amounts of safe, affordable food. But globally, nonetheless, approaching a billion people remain food insecure, and now probably more than 2 billion people are experiencing the consequences of overconsumption of calories um, in the form of um, highly processed unhealthy foods. Global food systems also interact profoundly with the world's climate um, and its natural resources. And they make a significant contribution to climate change, which in turn, of course, negatively feeds back onto the production of food, its sustainability, its availability, and its affordability. And these negative impacts then, in turn, impact the poorest people, the poorest and least advantaged nations, and especially on our indigenous peoples and communities. 
So what we're going to do is to, this evening is to start to explore some of these really big fundamental issues around food, the food system, um, and all of its impacts. And we have the enormous pleasure of having with us Professor Hilal Elva. Um, Professor Elva is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, and she's going to describe in her talk how national and global systems of governance contribute to these challenges. And she's going to give us her vision for how the right to food could be used to secure a global food system that provides healthy and sustainable food for all. Now, um, Professor Elva is going to be joined by Ronnie Khan, who is um, extremely well known to us all, founder of Oz Harvest, Australia's leading food rescue charity, and also Professor Mario Herrero, who's a chief research scientist at CSIRO Agriculture and Food. So welcome um, to you all. And I'm really pleased to be able to hand you over from this point onwards after Professor um, Elvis' talk to Dr. Alana Mann, who's one of the founders of the Food Lab Sydney, um, and Food Lab Sydney aims to increase access to healthy and affordable food by empowering individuals and communities in the creation of new food businesses. And it's now really over to me to hand over to Professor Elva. So I have the major points that I will try to make it at this uh, talk. Then uh, very shortly, the first state of food insecurity and malnutrition, we all know we are not doing well. And the second one, I'll try to make it what is right to food and uh, making human rights uh, approach to food system or food security, how make uh, uh, cases uh, developed in a better way. And the third one is a more uh, critical thinking about today's food uh, systems problems. And the fourth will be the challenges uh, arising from the climate change. I'm focusing more climate change and considering the uh, Australian case also. Also, it's difficult to talk to Australians about Australia, but I'll try to be very fast. Maybe you can, uh, you can understand uh, uh, it's a kind of not very deep knowledge. And then uh, at the end, I have this uh, global action for future, what we can do uh, all together. So the state of the uh, food insecurity we all know and uh, we already mentioned, it is not uh, in a good way to go because if you look at uh, last few years, starting from 2015, uh, global hunger and malnutrition rather than reducing uh, is increasing. 777 million in 2015. Right now in 2018, we reached 821 million and 2019 uh, will come in a month or maybe in, in uh, 15 days. Uh, they are expecting uh, more, but they are keeping very secretly what is exactly 2019's figures, which we don't know yet. This means 11% of increase of hunger, and more importantly, children are under very serious threat, which is 1.5 million children risk of death in, as a result of hunger and malnutrition. 
The malnutrition is global, but more importantly, in places that uh, children under serious threat of the uh, economic conditions, five to six million children die every year from malnutrition-related diseases, which these diseases definitely preventable. And 151 million uh, children under the five stunted and wasted, and then 80, uh, 38 million uh, under five, which is very important, overweight. This was never been historically. It's very new. And it's getting actually very early age, age of two, they become diabetes. And the doctors are really worried about how possible age of three you can be a diabetes. So uh, the uh, adults also overweight and obesity uh, is getting very big. Uh, various kind of figures from 1 million, 2 billion, sometimes overweight and uh, obesity mix with each other, but the, the uh, figures are big. So this. And this is more uh, a serious issue. Uh, what I would say, uh, according to United Nations, the food insecurity has a different kind of levels, from low level to the extremely alarming level. The low level, moderate level, we don't talk too much. But then the third level, serious one, alarming one, and extremely alarming, which is a, a basically a famine and starvation is becoming right now problematic. Since 2000, uh, since uh, Second World War, it was kind of disappeared. Now it is coming again. The 52 out of 119 uh, countries are seriously threatened uh, by them, and it's 113 million is alarmingly food insecure in the world. They need external humanitarian aid to survive. That's not something that uh, we should uh, confuse with the food insecurity, much more serious issue. The, one of the uh, more problematic countries, four of them right now, North is Nigeria, South Sudan, Somalia, Yemen, and sometimes now Myanmar is getting because of the Rohingya cases and the Democratic Republic of Congo also imminent danger of famine. Some of them are already uh, publicized by the UN. Uh, uh, the Famine situation. It's a very serious uh, kind of uh, because people die, and there is a rules and principle when we uh, publicize famine and when it is food security is different than. But we don't want to go to details right now. These are very severe issues. So. After this uh, uh, problematic picture, uh, uh, FAO, uh, as you know, this uh, uh, Food and Agricultural Organization, started to think about it, why it is happening. And they found these three reasoning, the conflict, climate change, and extreme weather events, and economic slowdown and impacts on social protection policies. So these are uh, common and uh, 
accepted by the international community. Uh, sometimes what we call them external impacts on uh, the food and uh, malnutrition policy. I would go further. It's a little bit more than this. This is more sanitized version of the why uh, hunger is uh, increasing. So basically more, uh, more vulnerable societies, more vulnerable people are must be protected first, according to human rights principles. So who are they? They are basically 95% are living in the subtropic regions in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and small island states. Most of them are farmers, smallholder farmers or landless farmers, or what we call also subsistence farmers, and uh, indigenous peoples, which indigenous people around the world are uh, so 500 million. And uh, basically, they produce 70% of the local food, which is a very important uh, issue. Only 30% of the land uh, uh, they under their hands. So this is a, one of the major issues is migration right now. We talk about in international arena. Uh, I think that there will be the next uh, food security report by the FAO will be based on migration issues, but it is not clear yet. I don't know. This is just my guess. So this uh, migration, basically climate change, extreme weather events, and war areas. This more extreme uh, feminine starvation is not only, is not countries that they have no problem. They have very serious conflict and war zones that are different than what we think about the food, uh, food uh, insecurity, as I said before. This is 2017 um, uh, figures, 65.3 million people uh, worldwide are forcibly displaced, but now it's getting bigger because we are in 2019, at least right now it's 70 million. So uh, the Europe and uh, the United States of America, even maybe Australia, they are under serious threat of the in a kind of a migration uh, flow, and they are thinking about how to do with this uh, uh, problem. So this this brings me to a second subject. So what, what should we do in this kind of uh, uh, food and malnutrition problem from the perspective of international human rights? So that's the right to food that we talk about it. First of all, we have to make clear understanding that right to food, it is not right to be fed, which means we will not sit at home and government will give us a food. Or uh, we will, uh, they will uh, make it some kind of food banks like UK, which is mushrooming around the world, or some kind of charity that they give to people food. This is not what we are talking about. So the, this is a very old uh, history. I'm not going to historical development of the human rights principles, but it started Universal Declaration of uh, Human Rights. Basically, uh, life, we all as an individual need a kind of living conditions, decent living conditions. This is about kind of simplistic way we talk about the Article 25. 
And then this become, uh, in 1966, quite a long time because they had lots of discussion. Some governments didn't want the economic social rights. Some governments didn't like the civil and political rights. It's a very political issue. During the period of the Cold War, the world was divided to two, and the, basically North and South East and West, and they sort of clash between these two rights. At the end, 1966, there is a, a international covenant, covenant of the economic and social rights came, and Article 11 is about right to adequate food, which the, uh, every individual has right to ask to uh, to uh, to access to food. So this is what is the legal s structure after the. Article 11, as I said, Universal Declaration, Article uh, 25, the first mother of everything, and then more legally acceptable international covenant. And then the states didn't do anything. They said, we don't understand what kind of law is this. Then the United Nations make explanation. What does that mean? Right to foot. This is the general uh, comment to us, the explaining that they can really implement this. And then in 2004, FAO uh, made the voluntary guidelines on right to food, further explanation, and further telling states what they should do to implement implement right to foot. So there are also other international human rights, protection of the women, protection of children, prote protection of the uh, <laughs> disabled peoples. They all have uh, uh, articles about uh, uh, right to foot. So what is this uh, right to foot, what the uh, states should do? Because states are the duty bearers. They are responsible, obliged to implement, and the citizens that we talk about, the citizens, they are the right holders. They are asking their rights. So this right would be the respect to the right to foot, which they don't have to do anything, what we call negative rights, and then protect the right to foot against any kind of interference. The fulfill is the only positive way if there is an emergency, war, or disaster, or climate change, also one of them, then state should step in to make uh, their own responsibility much, much more positive manner. So this, uh, what we talk about the food security generally, the food security means the food has to be available, which basically production, more production, which generally availability part became much more active and there's no problem basically about the availability of the food but there's an accessibility of the food is a problem which means economically and physically reaching the food that already produce and then adequacy is has to be a certain kind of quality which malnutrition comes in this case or safety of the food comes also in this area has to be uh, regulated and uh, at the end uh, this sustainability later come in 1990s when the environmental and 
climate change policies become important, then sustainability means you have to produce the food, but sustainably, not only for this generation, but also the, uh, the future generation. That's the sustainability part. So what, what we should do as a, for instance, how states can make this international human rights principles to the domestic level, then they, they can put in their national constitutions as a right to food is a, one of the fundamental rights, which basically I think 25, 30 countries in the world, they did it. Or they can make the framework laws even without any kind of uh, legal constitutional principles, or they make the sectoral laws and regulations to implement. So this abstract rules and principles should come in to the implementation through those uh, parliamentarians, through the uh, government's internal uh, domestic uh, level, uh, as opposed to international human rights commitments, because international human rights commitments become much more abstract without a legal uh, standing in the country. So what we, we, you see in this kind of home of the uh, uh, right to adequate food, we have food security, which we all know, availability, accessibility, stability, and the food utilization. And also, this has to be human rights principles underneath. So. For instance, what are the principles? What we should do to make the right to food is a right of the citizens. Citizens should be participating into decision-making processes. It's extremely important. If the government makes laws, they should ask the, all the relevant parties what kind of law they should do without asking. They should do in their own way. And non-discrimination is important. There should not be any part of the society discriminated against. This could be women, this could be poor, this could be rural against city or indigenous people or minorities should be equally protected. So because human dignity is important. Empowerment is very important, which means vulnerable should be the first. If they need an extra help, they should do this extra help. For instance, women empowerment is very much uh, uh, generally discussed. And also, more importantly, accountability. Accountability means we have a right to ask to the governments. We have to go to the access to justice, the court system, or any kind of system if the law is not properly protect our rights. For all of this, of course, we need a democratic society, democratic system that they can work properly. So I'm passing this. This gender equality and women empowerment is extremely important in relation to food and agricultural system. Right now, last, let's say last 10 years, not before 10 years, uh, not before, but women uh, role, because what we call feminization of the agriculture are becoming very important. With many countries, the women are farmers right now. Men go out, migrate somewhere else to try to get money. The women stays at home, the village, take care of the children and elderly, and they become farmer. Mostly women farmer are working for 
for no money, not, uh, not kind of any financial uh, issues, and also they don't have a property rights. They don't have any access to land, access to resources. So uh, World Bank and the FAO is very much worried about this situation because they are really producing, but they don't get any help. So this is the uh, World Bank and FAO uh, joint project. What, what they say, if the women can access the resources, the same resources, 20 to 30% will be much more, uh, more larger yield. And this will help reducing hunger and, mal hunger and malnutrition 12 to 17%. For instance, many countries are trying to make a law right now, despite without the uh, property rights, they give information or help to women farmers, and also because they understand, or sometimes there is a system in some countries, uh, what uh, what they call, they, they give money, the poor uh, fam uh, uh, home or uh, family, uh, family, but they don't give to women, they, give, they don't give to men, they give to women, because when women get the money, they treat their children, and the men get the money, they go spend. So that's the kind of things are very interesting right now in entire system. And we try to tell governments sometimes when they make a law, you should really consider this. And also in humanitarian help, humanitarian aid, when the situation is emergency, the uh, uh, United Nations goes and they, uh, give them money to women rather than men. So... What is the critical thinking about today's food system challenges? We all know, but the critical thinking generally we miss is inequality issues. We talk about the poverty, but we don't talk about the inequality. But inequality is getting more and more serious around the world, among the people and among the countries. So, and also between rural areas and the cities. So basically, uh, rural areas and the peripheries of cities are the people most vulnerable and they are unequal. They, they can't have an access to any of the opportunities to work or opportunities uh, to uh, have a nice housing or forget the nice housing housing or a kind of nutritious food. This also affects increased migration and internal, internal displaced people. These are important uh, kind of social problems. Without solving the social problems, we can't really make it the food system just and equitable. And also, uh, hunger and malnutrition are also increasing affluent societies because of the neoliberal global capitalist order, not only developing countries, but also developed countries like United uh, UK or United States, they have serious uh, uh, population is under food insecure level. For instance, in the United States, almost 49 people are food insecure. In UK, 14 million people are food insecure, which is a very serious issue, new issue. 
So one of the most important issues, of course, climate change, because whatever we try to do all these things, climate change really blocks all the good policies. And another issue is commodification of agriculture. So what is commodification of agriculture? Trade agreements, neoliberal economic policies, what they do to the food uh, policies. First of all, they go more uh, cheap monoculture uh, agriculture rather than a, a more uh, food nutritious uh, agriculture. And basically export oriented agriculture rather than uh, internal uh, consumption. This affects biodiversity and unhealthy uh, earth situation because these are you they use excessive pesticides and agrochemicals and this become this makes the soil very tired and pesticides really uh, makes the biodiversity uh, disappeared and this highly processed food uh, low nutrient food that causes non-communicable diseases uh, saturated in our mark, uh, market. And also, big industrial agriculture consolidate the land and water resources, which smallholder farmers, they cannot get any uh, kind of access. They basically sell their lands because they, they can't compete with the cheaper food because they produce cheap, cheap, cheaper food and then smallholder farmers cannot really handle this. So basically they are losing their lands, they are losing their uh, seeds, property of the seeds, which is a long thing I don't want to talk right now. So who controls the food system? We know, we already talked about it. Uh, basically, almost 10 controls of the whole system, not a big a kind of hundreds of the corporations, what we call oligopoly. It's not monopoly, it's getting there. So, for instance, four companies produce 60% of the world's seeds. Four companies uh, keep the research and development, 90% of the poultry genetics. This is in the United States, also in, I think, globally very high. And four produce more than 60% of the agrochemicals that farmers use. What basically do, they produce agrochemicals, they also produce seeds. It's come with the package. When you get the seeds, you have to get this agrochemicals because more and more you have to use more because seeds are genetically modified. So this companies, as you see, when we go to supermarket, we, we see thousands of different things, but exactly produced by these 10 companies. And these companies actually is extremely powerful. They are controlling the advertisement, controlling the national and global regulatory system. So we really have to be, as a citizen, would be very careful about it. They also abusing the agriculture and food chain workers, cheap food, migrant, undocumented uh, uh, people that working on these places. Basically, we don't know where they live in a kind of um, camps that 
It is not easy, accessible from outside. I'm talking about United States because I live in California. I see them. They can't even, they basically come from Southern uh, America. They don't even speak Spanish because mostly they are indigenous people. Same thing on Italy. Italy is really having a very serious problem because they're very much proud of their Mediterranean diet. But if you look at the Guardian three days ago, this Mediterranean diet comes big, big price because they use slave labor. So what we should do on this situation as a consumer? So also big companies push innovations very much. This innovation, it could be biotechnology, what we talk about the GMOs and other things. And they started to use robots and they started to use machines that thousands of miles they can harvest in one day rather than using thousands of people one month. So people are losing their jobs to uh, this uh, big uh, technological development. And also smallholder farmers are not able to uh, uh, afford this, then become smallholder farmers disappearing. They become uh, under the control of the big uh, farm companies, which become uh, contract farmers. So wealth is increasing. Hunger is increasing also. This is in the United States. It's amazing how the uh, wealthiest American combines are going high up, and also number of Americans suffering from food insecurity going high up. So the gap is bigger and bigger. As I said before, inequality, one of the problematic part of the food security, because top 1% is benefiting from unsustainable sustainable practices, while more suffering, experiencing poverty and hunger. The others, 99%. There's a movement in the United States, maybe you heard about it, 99%. It comes from this. And also inequality among the countries are getting bigger. Now 25% is much greater because of the climate change. Some, uh, uh, some reason in developing countries are more um, impacted by climate change and losing their power as opposed to uh, more developed countries. This doesn't mean that uh, only developing countries under serious threat, but their economic power is not strong enough to respond to this. So these are the super supermarkets that we are going and the most problematic part in the supermarket, how are we going to choose the food? So that is, so we, we fainted because of the uh, lots of choices. You know, uh, excess and supermarketization of our food system is very important. So we have to be very aware in a saturated market, lots of options, extremely cheap. But you, if you look at this extremely cheap food, how much calorie you gain and how much micronutrient you buy, only we need very well educated customer to get it. So 
the first time in our history, more people suffer from eating too much than too little food. This is a kind of very, uh, very strange situation that we are having right now in 21st century. 1.5 billion are overweight, 700 million obese. In United States, now 40%. When I write this, it was 2015, 30% of people obese. Now, 40% of the people in the United States is obese. And uh, strangely enough, poor people pays more to food than the rich people. So that's also a very serious kind of human rights issue. For instance, if you go to Africa, 70% uh, of the budget goes to food. Many developing countries between 50 to 70. But if you go to Switzerland, 6.5%. United States, 7% of the budget goes to food. I don't know what is the situation in Australia. So why we are... Uh, having a, is a Africa famine, and we are having a serious kind of health problems in developed world. So nutrition problem is one in three people worldwide are malnourished, which is not only we are talking about 821, one in three people. This is very serious issue. Overweight, obese, and deficiency uh, vitamin or minerals are very important because it is not visible. We can't see them. You really have to uh, diagnose them. Many people are obese, also at the same time malnutritious that we we call transition, nutrition transition. I think there are a lot of nutrition experts in this room. They know better than I do. So uh, this is uh, what happened, the poor diet. They not only overweight obesity, but they get high blood pressure, anemia, stunting, recent type 2 diabetes. So Healthy food is expensive. There's no question about it. For instance, in the United States, if you want to buy a one Mac hamburger, and if you want to buy a good quality apple, one apple is equal to a Mac hamburger. And people think about to their children what they should. If they need a protein, obviously they go to buy a Mac hamburger because the price is the same, because price is very expensive in good quality uh, uh, fruit, which is, these countries are not the only one, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Paraguay, Argentina, these are many of them are, uh, I went to these places, that's what I know. They are paying huge amount of money for a good uh, kind of uh, fruit and vegetables. Share of per capita household income to buy five fruits and vegetables. They, one day, one person is the 52% of their uh, income. This is very serious because we have to do other things. So... Why this is, advertisement is extremely important in our world. As you know, we are saturated, we are sort of bombarded in the TV. It is not only in developing countries. I was in Netherlands, which is the most sophisticated food producers in the world. The advertisements was about young children 
and chocolate and sugar type of things. So they spent $1 billion advertising spend of only Hershey and General Mints. These are two American companies that sugar uh, type of things in 2016. In, at that time, government only spent $50 million uh, for non-communicable diseases to uh, avoid or to treat them. That's incredible uh, kind of uh, wrong uh, policy for the world. So then we go to climate change. Uh, climate change is top of all these problems. It's come very universal existential threat of our world. And it's a very serious and globally we have to make this all together because we cannot do one nation and to another. 80% of all disasters push 20 mil, 26 million to acute food insecurity in 2018, according to your report, mostly in Africa. Nearly 23 million people in 20 countries are acutely food insecure, again, just because of the extreme weather events. Extreme weather events, drought, flood, mudslide, all of them are happening in everywhere, including Australia. But the impacts are very different. So more than 80% of the extreme weather events is climate-related. So that's a very serious issue. So if you look at this UN um, report again, rising temperature between 96 to 2020, it's you see how the red zones are becoming slowly going down and taking over the mid uh, part of the uh, planet. So this is from FAO. They show how how affects this um, global warming is uh, as opposed to food system, water ecosystem and extreme weather events from zero to one degree, two degree, three, four, all the way to five, which getting much more reddish and serious. And this shows that the degrees are uh, very, very important uh, in relation to uh, global warming. And as you know, Paris Agreement only talks about the two, two degrees. Two degrees is not... Uh, acceptable. It is not going to help. It's not going to protect anything. Impact of crop yields is important depending on what kind of crop we are talking about and depending on what kind of uh, climate, what kind of geographical conditions. They are all different. Every country should really deal with their own way. And IPCC, which intergovernmental climate change scientists, they make these reports and they give the governments to tell them what to do. And impact of hunger and malnutrition, I told you already, it's a 10 or 20% hunger increase by 2050. So the malnutrition is increasing, hunger is increasing. There are some problems from the market, from the bad policies and everything, but the climate change is also extremely important. Climate change and also change the quality of the um, um, seeds or quality of the um, agricultural uh, yield. Zinc deficiency, what we call carbon dioxide, 
opposite impact of the zinc. We didn't know this. Now scientists are doing all these researches. What kind of uh, food will be impacted increase carbon dioxide, which is a serious issue. So the water is very important around the world. These are the major uh, basins, these uh, water basins, which uh, melting uh, water and not getting enough uh, uh, snow that they build to water system will be a serious problem and political issues among the countries. This uh, And the falling water tables in around 1990s were very high this uh, irrigation, but since 1990s, it's reducing because there is not enough groundwater around the world globally. Some parts are more better than the others. So why is the problem? Problem is climate change impacted food security and food security is impacted to climate change, which we talk about the industrial agriculture. So basically food, uh, big time food producers, they come to the uh, idea that you need 50% uh, more food in 2050 because we have 9, 9 billion, uh, billion people approximately. So because of the climate change, we will reduce, so you need more. So that is a kind of difficult issue to deal with it. In, but when the industrial agriculture goes further, land, degra land degradation becomes important and also ocean fish stock are overfished. Loss, loss of biodiversity Diversity is serious issues, and if you're really interested, then you, I would uh, consider you read this report. Uh, the report is uh, inter uh, IP. Uh, I don't. I forgot right now the opening. Biological and scientific organization. Okay, so it's a, go to the internet, read this. It is incredibly alarming. So that's a very a good work they did. They, they get a lot of attention in May 2019. So livestock, which is important for the Australia, one of the problematic um, agricultural uh, production because it's important GDP for the countries. One third of the global agricultural GDP comes from the livestock and they are the largest user of land resources and they are the larger users of the water resources. So that's a very important issue, how to deal with the livestock. Because rising population and changing eating habits makes more and more demand. So US is the most uh, meat eater country, China is coming. But China is coming, but uh, catching the US still a long time. But these two biggest, uh, uh, kind of consumers are impo important. This is the show industrial food production emission, which is carbon dioxide, methane, and all other um, 
gases which in, uh, contribute to greenhouse uh, gas emission. So here we talk about the, how much greenhouse gas emission affects uh, from the agricultural system. If you look at the entire system, not only production, for instance, farming, 15%, transport, 6%, processing, freezing, waste, deforestation, almost more than 50% greenhouse gas emission goes to the food system. Uh, the global food waste, by the way, 30%. I'm not going to talk very uh, long, uh, uh, food waste. We have guests, she will talk about this. It's a serious issue because also it's a climate change issue, food waste. We produce, we, uh, when we produce, we produce greenhouse gas emission, we throw them, then we produce methane. So that's a very serious issue. Australia's climate change become important because in May there was an election. Many of the newspapers were talking about what's happening in Australia because one of the important developed countries that will be severely impacted by climate change in relation to um, heating, which temperature is changing, warming is important, especially two parts. Uh, one is the southeast, I think. The other one is the, uh, uh, <coughs> the basin of the Murray Darling. So how will it affect uh, climate change? This is the Climate Council uh, map. You see uh, extreme weather events very much affected uh, the uh, Australian uh, climate change policies. And also, uh, of course, rising sea level because Australia is island and also hot uh, weather. So. What will be the future? What we're going to do? Now I'm finishing. Uh, many of you know the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. It's a global uh, agenda for the future of the world. 17 principles are very important, but they have to be together. If we don't do it together, we are not going to reach anywhere. Plus, the governments are not accountable. So any government, they, they do anything, nobody question them. In this situation, I don't think so in 2030, any of the targets will be acceptable. So what we, could, what we could do for the future? The future is, first of all, we have to understand human rights approach to food security in order to feed people equitably and justly. It is not the charity, it's a legal entitlement. Gender equality is the most important thing in food and agricultural system, has to be definitely implemented. The changing production methods is very important from industrial agriculture, we gradually should go to ecosystem-oriented production, which one of them is agroecology, but it's not the only one. So also we have to change the consumption methods. Less meat, more plant, this is definite. Less weight and eat locally and seasonally. Now we are eating everything in every season. This is very dangerous, we have to really understand the changing our style, 
And then, and I said before, democratization of food system is important. Community-supported agriculture, food policy councils, as many parts of the developed world actually is mushrooming, and the food sovereignty for the rural organization, rural areas is extremely important. Let me stop here. Any question, I go further. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. Uh, well, I, I think that... Uh, as, as a respondent, I, I don't think that I have much to, to respond to. I think that that was a, a phenomenal paper covering a lot of ground uh, that look uh, covering from all the production aspects to the environmental ones to, to issues around food sovereignty and so on. But um, perhaps I would like to follow up on, on a few of the topics that Hilal mentioned. And for me, one of them uh, is, criti is critical. It's who's producing the food that, that we are eating. Uh, look, in reality, uh, when you look at the developing world and when you look at, at a global picture of who is producing the food, most of the estimates that we have uh, would, would say that smallholders are still producing about 60 to 70% of, of the food. And a lot of this food is still traded in local markets with a lot of problems around zoonosis, with a lot of problems related to, uh, to food safety and so on. Now, at the same time, these smallholders are usually the ones that, uh, that really have the, the, the biggest yield gaps in their systems. So in, in general terms, these are systems where we could actually increase food production significantly uh, if the appropriate methods reach there. It's, these are probably systems that are a little bit more, um, where, where diversified food sources could come from. And this is really important from a climate change perspective because diversification has been one of the critical uh, strategies that smallholders have actually uh, implemented to be able to cope with climate change. It's something that really um, removes a lot of the variability in incomes and produces very significant cash flows. So look, producing more, more diverse food would be critical for, for systems in the developing world where we see a lot of undernutrition and where, uh, well, increases in obesity are starting to happen in, in many of these places. Uh, in relation to livestock, <clears throat> livestock, as we know, are, are a very important source of, of micronutrients, especially for poor people. And key here is that we really start disentangling what we, uh, the double burden of nutrition and also where it's actually happening. Because look, the strategies, we, we cannot talk about a, a, a global food system per se. The strategies are really completely different in terms of what we, what we need to do. On one hand, yes, there is overconsumption in many OECD countries and in, in the emerging economies. We start seeing, for example, in, in very big uh, 
very big countries, uh, urban populations are suffering from significant levels of obesity at the same time. And it is in those countries where it's really, really tricky to start trying to affect policies because a lot of people would say, well, why don't you start increasing the prices of, of meat? Well, because, well, when you have rich and poor in the same in the same place, it really becomes really difficult to have policies that will not actually uh, affect the poor consumers. And I think that this is something that we need to be really a, a, li a little bit more careful in how we uh, deal with it. The other thing that I wanted to say is, well, look, what we eat impacts the environment. We recently published the, the Eat Lancet report on healthy diets from sustainable food systems. And there was, after that, uh, another volume by, by the Eat Lancet Commission on Obesity that, well, you, you mentioned some of the problems uh, of, the, of the big companies and so on. And this is, this is something that is very, very evident in, in all parts of the world. But I think that, look, the message, at least from the Eat Lancet uh, report, is... It's very clear in, in this dual, dual side of things. I think that, look, for rich Australian consumers and so on, uh, basically the message is make the veggies uh, the star of the plate. I think that we all started, um, if, if we go back to the 70s or the 80s, you used to go to a restaurant and it was a big chunk of meat and with a few potatoes and perhaps the odd carrot. Well, why don't we change that to, to, to see food of all colors in that plate? And that's probably one of the things that we should do and eat meat in, in moderation. Uh, while, for example, for, uh, for the developing world, look, I think that we really need to keep maintaining the livestock perspective uh, high up on the agenda simply because um, a lot of the nutrient uh, issues that we have are very, very significant and livestock would still be one of the most nutrient-packed sources of, of those foods as well as the vegetables and fruits, which actually we're not consuming enough and they're not getting produced in the, in the necessary quantities. Yes, I want, I want to tell you something that's emerging in the climate change literature that might surprise you. Um, I'm part of, of the IPCC reports. I deal with the mitigation chapter. And what we are looking at at the moment is uh, a real problem of mitigation in land-based systems. We've, the latest studies are showing that the costs implementing mitigation practices via land, for example, trying to put land, to set aside land, to do biofuels or to do large reforestation projects, uh, will increase uh, the rates of undernutrition that we're observing in the world. Why? Because trying to mitigate climate via land will increase food prices very likely. Most, most of the integrated assessments emerging are actually uh, pointing towards that. And in many cases, these, uh, these impacts will be even higher than the climate change impact per se and it will be more expensive. 
So how do we deal with this? Well, in many cases, we will just need to really reduce consumption in, in some of the cases and definitely not think of biofuels as an alternative because let's face it, we don't have enough land. We are now at what, 1.5 billion hectares. Um, that's the cropland of the world. Any remaining uh, high quality land uh, is stocked in the Amazon, is stocked in the, uh, in the Congo Basin and, um, in, and in parts of Indonesia. And that's it. So a lot of people tell me, oh, no, but we have a lot more cropland. Yeah, of course, we have a lot more cropland if we keep chopping and expanding into places that would be more suitable for carbon. I think that we really need to take that very, very seriously and really start thinking, well, what are going to be the mechanisms by which we can achieve the necessary mitigation, but without having to touch the land resources? And that's probably also why in the Eat Lancet report, we highlighted that very significantly. The third point is really about technology. Look, I, I try to be an optimist in, in, in looking at the food system. When I look at, when we do all these projections to 2050 and everything, I find that um, what usually happens is that, look, we meet the demands of the, of the population, but probably not uh, making inroads in many of the SDGs that we want. Now, if we want to meet the SDGs, if we want to really um, engage with this, look, we will need uh, very significant technological uh, uh, improvements. It's something that I call wild futures. I lived in Africa uh, in the mid-90s. And look, and I had a Nokia 3210, and this was, what, 1996, something like that. If you would have told me that my Maasai mates would have, would have had cell phones and apps to decide on where to take their cattle to, uh, look, I wouldn't have believed it. it it's been a tremendous technological revolution and many things are happening. And I think that uh, the more that we can democratize technology, uh, the more we can also be able to solve the problems here. Now, for, for all of us who are sitting here, in terms of strategies on, on how can we help, I think, that, I think that these things usually start with, with oneself and keep Think about what, what you're wasting. I think that waste reduction will be central to, to how we achieve the solutions. I think that there's a lot uh, of talk now about a circular economy, and we really need to embrace it uh, significantly and really create the new businesses that will, and, and support the new businesses that will emerge from, from uh, engaging in circularity. I, th I think that the mentality is changing. Then, obviously, be very conscious of, of what, what we eat. And in terms of agriculture, I think that it's really trying to maintain sustainable intensification, perhaps with a little bit more emphasis on the sustainable. And the sustainable for me is important because I really want my kids to be happy in the future and not to, not to leave uh, to them a really, uh, well, a real disaster in terms of, of the world where we live. Cheers. Um, I too would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose land we meet tonight and pay my deep respects to their elders past, present and emerging. 
And I truly believe that everything we need to discover about food, we can learn from the indigenous custodians of this land. One of the most beautiful Aboriginal teachings is the ancient unspoken law that when collecting eggs from the nest, we always leave one egg in the nest. You always leave an egg for future generations. So there is so much to learn from this way of living. But sadly, as we have heard from Professor Elma Elva, this is not our current approach to ensuring the right to food for future generations. Food is integral to all of us. It connects us to each other, to our culture, to nature, shaping the world in which we live. Food is universal. It's a celebration. Food is dignity. Food is respect. And food is about us sharing. But as we have already heard this evening, some of the biggest challenges we face, from food security to climate change, to workers' rights, to public health, stem from how and what we eat. We are seven billion people on a planet in crisis with a broken food system. And with population growth depicted, predicted to put another three billion on the planet by 2050, the complex challenges facing our food system will only be exacerbated. We've heard that from both Mario and both from Professor Elva. It is estimated that the food produced worldwide will need to increase by 107 million tons annually to face our food system and to meet the future needs of 2050. And as Professor Elva pointed out today, it is not a shortage of food that is the reason for malnutrition and for the food insecurity in our world today. Food production levels are at an all-time high. Globally, we produce enough food in this world today to feed everyone, but we throw one-third away. In fact, we throw six garbage trucks of edible food every second globally. While 800 million people around the world go hungry, and for those of you who are not actually familiar with the figures here in Australia, four million people in Australia go hungry every year or need or are considered food insecure. At Oz Harvest, we see daily how our food system is failing us. Every single day, it is happening right here on our very own doorstep. When I established Oz Harvest in 2004, I had no idea of the extent of the challenges. I saw food waste personally in the hospitality sector, and that's where I thought it was. I thought I would get a truck, pick up some food and deliver it and solve the problem. How wrong I was. 120 million meals later, I now understand that in Australia, we throw away 7.3 million tons of food every year. And it's costing the economy over $20 billion a year. That's just in Australia. I'm not talking global. But actually, there is good news. 
Addressing food waste represents one of the greatest possibilities for citizens, companies, and communities to contribute to reversing global warming. Project Drawdown has identified that reducing food waste as the third most impactful way to reverse climate change. Addressing food waste feeds more people, increases economic benefits, and preserves threatened ecosystems. Tackling the crisis of food waste is at the heart of securing the right to food, but it's only one part of the solution. To Professor Elva's point, we need a systems-wide approach to food security. We need government policies that not only focus on the economic output of food production, but a human rights-based approach that addresses the root causes of hunger, malnutrition, poverty, and food waste. No level of government, no single charity, no single business or citizen can solve the challenge of living sustainably on this planet alone. Success can only be achieved through the powerful combination of law, policy, regulation, investment, and infrastructure. If it's underpinned by a fundamental change in the way that we consume and value food. And that's where we all come in. We are actually all part of the solution. By changing our mindset to move away from seeing ourselves as consumers and to start seeing ourselves, ourselves as food citizens, we can and must become food citizens. A food, a food citizen takes care when buying food. A food citizen asks questions about where food comes from, how it is made, what is in it, its provenance, who grew it, and how safe is it for me to eat. A food citizen values food and certainly never wastes it. A food citizen is an active agent in our food system. Being a food citizen is about going back to basics, eating seasonally, eating local, but thinking global. It's thinking about the way generations before us have treated food with respect, love, and an eye always on the future. If we all act as food citizens, we can change the future of our food system. And if we don't act now, it will literally cost us the earth. Thank you. Well, we've joined a lot of dots tonight and we still have many unanswered questions, but we are going to wrap up. Before we go, I would like to invite each of our speakers just to give one food citizenship word of advice so we can end on a positive note. How do we be a food citizen? Well, I think we have to think about it when we eat food, who produced them, how they produce them, and how we be helpful being a good citizen to share with others. Mario? Uh, yeah, it's roughly the same. Be mindful of, of what you eat. Yeah, food is dignity, and we all want dignity and respect. And every single time you take a bite, of something, value it, appreciate it.
That's how we all become food citizens. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.